Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the bloody battle for the Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol, and Dominic Nichols speaks to Britain's Secretary of State for Defence, Ben Wallace, while on a trip to Finland. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 5th of May, day 71. And today I'm joined by Defence and Security Editor Dominic Nichols and Deputy Foreign Editor Theo Mers. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the front line. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. So mainly... The artillery duels are are carrying on. I'll come back to that in just a moment. But the other big news is that there is a renewed offensive, very, very violent in the uh, Azovstal plant down in Mariupol, the last holdout of the Ukrainian forces in the coastal city down there. The fighting is very heavy down there. Never mind, Russia said a week ago that they they had completed their operation or however they worded it. But um, yeah, there's very, very heavy fighting going on there. Still hundreds of civilians well, expected hundreds of civilians, certainly high dozens of civilians trapped in the plant and thousands more in the city itself. So that is that is not to be welcomed at all, that there's very heavy fighting in Azovstal. As I said elsewhere in the Donbass, there's the art- artillery duels, as we as we should, should sort of customise it. There's um, Russia has been targeting supply lines. There's a, a bridge and the radio, uh, radio sorry, railway facility in Dnipro, and other power facilities have been have been hit uh, equally. Ukrainian has Ukra- Ukrainian forces have been shelling areas in the Donbass, and there are uh, Russian um, ammunition and oil depots or f- uh, storage facilities that have been hit there. So again, that that sort of tit for tat, or um, uh, as I say, the 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 uh, the continued artillery duels going on there. Um, and still pressure in the north, not not huge advances in the last 24 hours, but still great pressure for the, to the north and the north east, northeast of Kharkiv, where Ukrainian forces are having some some local tactical success, push, pushing the Russians back. I'll pause there. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Theo, do you have much to add to that? Yes, just on the Azovstal plant in Mariupol, we were told earlier today that there would be a humanitarian corridor to 
get the or at least some of the civilians remaining in that plant out and to safety in Ukraine. The Kremlin has said in the last hour that those humanitarian corridors are functioning. But from what we're hearing on the ground and from what we're getting from the Ukrainian side, from authorities in Kiev, there's really bloody battles being waged right now in the plant. We found out yesterday that Russian forces had managed to break through defences and into the the bunkers around the plant or into into the grounds of of the plant itself so it's very hard to get a clear picture of what is going on there there haven't been independent journalists in Mariupol for quite a long time because of the security situation but it certainly doesn't seem like the situation is one in which evacuations can be happening at the moment in the way that we have seen earlier in the week thanks to you um also, can we talk about, there was an interview done by Alexander Lukashenko, the um, leader of Belarus, that he gave to the Associated Press. Um, Theo, I know you wanted to talk about this. I thought it was a rather revealing interview. What did he say? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, so what he said was that he thought the war was was dragging on and that he would do everything that he could to stop it. And it's always rather hard literally to work out what uh, Lukashenko is saying because he often contradicts himself in in speeches and when you're when you're following his speeches as a journalist you sometimes think ah this is what he means or ah this is this is what we have to report and then he'll he'll row back on it or, or he'll qualify it in in some way but from what he said in this interview with the Associated Press it does seem to be slightly distancing himself from from Putin he's not saying this is a a wonderful a wonderful thing that he is he is doing in Ukraine and he has my backing for as long as it takes even though um I mean Putin is his is Lukashenko's only ally on the global stage he totally isolated himself from from Europe by cracking down hard on protests in his own country a couple of years ago so he really relies on on Putin economically politically diplomatically so it's it's interesting that he is um that he is slightly uh, contradicting the the kremlin here and what he was calling for in the same interview is a return to negotiations he said in this rather trump like way that I am the only person who will be able to mediate or facilitate these negotiations. They have to happen in Belarus as the talks that um, began and and failed at the start of the the conflict did happen. They they happened just over the the Ukrainian-Belarusian border. And I I don't think this has a, a huge practical significance for the conflict. Belarusian forces were were expected we, we were sort of thinking that they might get involved at the at the start of the invasion but that hasn't happened on a on a large scale so it's it's not that he is withdrawing a significant military support for Putin but perhaps it's showing that that Putin is is more isolated than even he expected and when Lukashenko does this thing of sort of saying one thing and you're not quite sure whether he means it or not it's often it, it, it sounds it sounds very silly, but there's a, a clever 
logic there that he's trying to play Putin and the West off against each other in a way and show that I'm not entirely with the Kremlin and I'm not with with Europe so you have to work a little bit more for for my support and you have to you have to give me what I want as well so it's just an, an interesting development for for the day this interview with Associated Press. Yeah and if I could just jump in there I think that's backed up by a couple of messages from the British MOD in the last 24 hours. Firstly, um, I, as you said, I was, I've been in Finland. I just got back from Finland with the uh, on a visit with the, the Defence Secretary, um, and and we were talking about about Belarus and this this idea at certainly in the first few weeks of the war that they might they might either participate or or just lend material support or um, as it seems to be they've just they've just proved to be an area for for Russia to reconstitute the forces that. Um, were pushed out of the north of the country. But, I mean, the Defence Secretary was playing down any likelihood of, of significant Belarusian involvement. Um, he said they, they seem to have a bit of a problem at the moment with, and this is a quote, with their uh, exploding railway lines, um, uh, suggesting the, the images that we've seen recently, a, a number of images of I suppose sabotage. We're not entirely sure what what's happened, but but somebody has been having to go at a lot of the, the railway lines in in Belarus to, to which would stymie, well certainly slow down any Russian Russian movement. So uh, Ben Wallace was was, if not playing down the threat, he certainly wasn't suggesting that Belarus are about to take a much greater active interest. And the second thing to note is that the uh, British Defence Intelligence today they they've they've put out a note about a number of military exercises that Belarus is about to or that it is conducting at the moment, and they say this is this is totally in line with seasonal norms. This is the sort of end of their winter exercise season. Um, we shouldn't we shouldn't immediately su- suggest that increased movement of of military forces in Belarus is a, shows a different intent or, or or some kind of change of direction. Um, the, the defense intelligence note does does suggest does warn that Russia might try to and this is a quite inflate the threat posed by the exercises. Um, I mean, exercises have historically been used as 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 a false front, and then they suddenly launch over the border, and the the exercise turns into the invasion. So they're not suggesting that that quite the other quite the reverse. Actually, they're they're suggesting that um, these are these are normal, and the note suggests that there, there has been no deviation, which would which would suggest an increased threat. Um, has been seen or currently anticipated. So there's some, there's some movement, heavy metal movement north of the border, but uh, seasonal norms at the moment and the British Defence Secretary playing down any significant increase in, in Belarusian involvement in, the, in Russia's war. Can we just go back um, for a moment to Mariupol and Azovstal and the Azovstal steel plant? Um, we've mentioned it a few times, but just because this particular siege has been going on for so, for so long, if we do see a conclusion of that of that battle in the next uh, in the next few days or even today, what what's the impact of that on on the on the war? Well, let's look at both sides here. First of all, for for Russia. Uh, they will claim a victory, but how that will sit with the claim two weeks ago that their that their mission was was over um, is debatable. Secondly, the forces that that, that they'll free up, we've been we've been led to believe there's about nine Russian battalion tactical groups involved in this fight in in Mariupol. Um, how many of those were specifically aimed against the Azovstal plant? We we don't know. Whether those battalion tactical groups are still at the starting strength of about six or seven hundred uh, personnel, we're not we're not sure. Uh, and there have been reports that 
about three or four battalion tactical groups have have moved north as as Mariupol the fight has has just focused on the Azovstal plant. Three or four battalion tactical groups have been diverted north to go uh, and fight in the in the Donbass. And as we said before, those Russian forces are, are going to take weeks. I mean, it's not days to reconstitute them. They've had a an, an exceedingly hard fight in the urban setting of Mariupol. They, they can't just sort of flick north, head up and, and off, off you go into the Donbass. It will take some time for them to reconstitute. So if if Russia were to prevail in Mariupol, um, it would have no immediate operational um, d- difference, impact. On the Ukrainian side, I, I, it, it would be a tragedy, a civilian-led tragedy because they are in vastly great numbers than the fighters um i mean being being a bit callous if you if you like being a bit a bit cold cold-hearted here they they've already got their victory so ukraine have got the legend of the mariupol resistance that can't be taken away from them no, no matter what happens to the the fighters that are left that uh dogged resistance a bit like snake island at the start and some of the other some of the other images and legends that we've seen this is already baked in it's there it's there it's there for keeps so of course we don't want unnecessary loss of life but um this will this will be held up as as a symbol of ukrainian resistance it will be marked nationally and um and for, for many years to come, I, I would imagine. So if, if the Avastol plant falls to Russia today or, or, or whenever, I, I don't think that will in any way dilute the, the great symbolic um, effort that it, that it already is. Um, so, yes, it, it, as we've said for some time now, Mariupol is not tactically significant for either side. It, is, it, is strategic, it has been strategically significant for some weeks now. And... And Ukraine have won that strategic battle. Again, as I say, it's a bit cold-hearted to say, it, regardless of of the loss of life, and, and I'm not disregarding the loss of life, but I'm saying that the fact of that resistance is a strategic success in its own in its own right, in a way that it simply cannot be. No matter what Putin says, that may be fine. Okay, he, this might be the victory he wants to announce on Monday, the ninth, um, but it's not. I mean, th- this this strategic resistance um is ukraine's victory thanks tom anything to add on that theo or shall i shall i continue with some other questions yeah i I think um i think dom is absolutely right there that it's it's about saving the lives of i mean for ukraine it's about saving the lives of the civilians who are still in in the steel plant but it's also this symbolic victory and uh, only today authorities in kiev were saying this is our number one priority in the in the conflict which in some ways looks rather strange when when they say that because it as dom says it doesn't have a strategic significance at all but as as well as saving the lives of the people who are there it has this huge there is this this huge symbolism and um so i i think that is that that is the important thing, and that is really what they mean when they say it's our, our number one priority. Let's thanks for that. Let's move on. Um, 
There's an interesting thing today, I thought. Ukraine's first deputy minister of agrarian policy and food, that's this is Taras Vysotsky, has claimed that Russian forces have taken a total of 400,000 tonnes of grain from uh, the occupied regions in Ukraine. Um, Theo and Dom, why, why have they done this? Yeah, well, this was earlier this week, and what this what this minister was saying is that they are trying to use hunger as a weapon of war by de- depriving these areas of the grain that they need, and this has really horrific historical echoes in in Ukraine because of the the famines that Stalin imposed on the on the country again through wheat shortages and collectivization to get the country to submit to Soviet rule and to to Moscow and to Moscow rule and there was a, a huge loss of life there incredibly grim stories stories of cannibalism from the Ukrainian countryside because the the famine was was so severe, and this is marked as a as a national tragedy, sort of on on the same level as as the the Holocaust in in Ukraine. So it has these really terrible historical echoes, and it's it's hard in a way to see if this is the case. If Russia has taken so much grain from from these regions, why else it would be it would be doing that? And uh, either I think earlier this week a, a Russian. MP, well, said, and this was briefly reported online through Procomin Media before it was deleted, that he, he said that we must use these um, sort of excess grain in, in Ukraine to, to make up shortfall in, in Russian domestic supply. So there was somebody coming out, albeit briefly, and saying that, that this is where the, the grain is is going to be is going to be going and it's it's hard to explain in another way if that has indeed been if that has indeed been happening thanks theo yes i just thought it was interesting and as as you said horrifying that on the one hand you've got forces in in the south using the old soviet flags and then these tactics as well which as you said hark back to the holodomor and hark back to the 1930s um um dom one question to you before we talk um uh, oh yes dom would you like to come in uh, well, I was just going to make the point. I was going to, uh, in the absence of of Francis's amazing historical brain, which I can't compete with when he's in when he's in the same room as me. So now he's not here. I can have a go. I would just just remind people of the Hunger Winter, nineteen forty four forty five. This was after Operation Market Garden in the Second World War, when British uh, and Allied forces, um, thousands of Americans, tried to take the the, uh, the bridges, um, and get into get into Germany and. and and push for the for the victory prior, which would undoubtedly, if the bridges have fallen, um, undoubtedly, probably have, have been over by Christmas '44. The third bridge, Arnhem Bridge, didn't um, didn't fall, and the uh, the Dutch civilians around there were subjected to huge reprisals by the by the German forces, such that that winter '44 '45 became known as the Hunger Winter, with great starvation. Um, but what it didn't do was turn the population either against against their own forces or, or against the Allies for trying. Um, and there's very, very close ties to this day. You know, I, I enjoy going back to Arnhem each September for the, um, for the commemorations there. Um, I mean, partly because I, I served with airborne forces, so you know, there's a, a link anyway. But um, you know, there's, there's, there's great affinity between, uh, between the, the, uh, the town of Arnhem and the, the immediate area around there for the efforts that were, 
that were done on their behalf and this 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 tragic time when thousands of civilians died because it, of, of starvation through the hunger winter was is seen at the time and now as, as another totem of, of resolve and and is, did not split the the allied effort civilian and military um, allied effort against against germany so hunger being used as a weapon of war um it, it's horrific and and i would have to check the, the lawyer but i would imagine it's it's uh, against um all kinds of geneva conventions and in, international law but you know, it does, doesn't really work. It seems to it seems to stiffen the the resolve of the of the defenders. Um, so, uh, an interesting historical narrative there, just uh, with what's going on at the moment. Thanks, Tom. Uh, yes. Well, this actually leads right into my question to you. Before we talk about Finland, uh, a note from Britain's defence ministry yesterday said that Russia continues to hit non-military targets in Ukraine, such as residential properties, transport hubs, um, to weaken the country's resolve. We, I think we've we've known for weeks that that hasn't worked. Um, so I, I'd like to ask why why do you think they're still doing it? Because they haven't got any precision guided munitions left, or they haven't got enough, and the air force is reluctant to operate by day, uh, and very reluctant to operate ahead of its own forces. So they are having to operate from airfields in Russia. They are firing long range ammunition. Uh, air force are. The ground forces are firing um, long-range artillery, which is just not as accurate as if you, you know, l- l- the longer the range, the less accurate it's going to be. They've got very few precision-guided munitions left. They, um, if they are are trying to think about it strategically, they seem to be trying to hold these things to to interdict some of the the more high-value targets. Um, maybe trying to hold them back for an eventual push again on Kiev. we're not quite sure but the evidence on the ground is that there is there are very very few strikes now by precision guided munitions and therefore there's a lot of civilian casualties a lot of collateral damage being um uh, being spread around the, the whole of ukraine thanks tom i thought that, that that's that's an incredibly useful answer um so dom nichols you've been in finland can you tell us a little bit about your trip you traveled with the defense secretary ben wallace why was he going to finland yeah so ben, ben wallace headed out to Finland to visit a, a, a British Army exercise, Queen's Royal Hussars, were, were on exercise with Challenger 2 tanks, um, operating with uh, Finnish counterparts, uh, Americans as well. And um, he, he was also going to visit his opposite number, Antti Kaikkonen, the new uh, Finnish uh, defence minister. And so it was a, a whistle stop tour in, into Finland. And then on, on the way back today, he stopped off in Norway uh, and he's, he's back in UK um, at some point later later today, um, so it was it was to obviously against the backdrop of this expected um, bid for membership of NATO by Finland and Sweden, both countries um, historically cool to NATO, uh, prided their uh, independence, and um, Finland had historical ties with the Cold War for why why they they were were less. Um, keen to to join nato the pejorative term and it is pejorative the finlandization uh, which suggests that uh, a, a country that, that that is not in total control of its own foreign policy this is the suggestion that after finland was only not not subsumed into the warsaw pact because it agreed not to join nato and to basically cede some of its um, foreign policy ambitions to uh, soviet russia's will um, that is not not the case anymore of course and um 
given the events in Ukraine since February the 24th, it's now looking extremely likely that they will apply for membership of NATO. Certainly the public opinion has shifted very much in that favour. It was, as I say, it was it was under 50 percent until quite recently. I think the latest poll in January had it just under 50 percent of the public were were supportive of, of a NATO membership bid. It's now well over. It's into the high 60s now. I'm looking at very likely. Um, it's looking likely that the, the next big NATO summit in uh, June in Madrid will see, will see some movement on this. Uh, and so it was, it was, it was not, Ben Wallace didn't go there to try and try and twist their arm or, or, or try and convince them. It, it was very clear that, that, that it's entirely their decision, but uh, Finland and, and Sweden, um, he was saying that actually a lot of what the war in Ukraine is about is the, the freedom to choose. Now, Choose your destiny. Choose your your own foreign policy. Choose your strategic direction as a country, as a sovereign state. Um, th- that is more important than what the choice is. He said we NATO would welcome both countries in very close defence ties already with with both of them. Um, and he he was clambering all over a CV ninety uh, infantry fighting vehicle that uh, that Finland were fielding, and um, and you know it was, it was very popular. I was asking the the British soldiers there what they thought of it. They all absolutely loved it. And um, totally independently of each other, said, "What's the what's the best thing?" They all went heated seats. <laughs> you know, you got to know what's important. Um, but yeah, the CV90 Swedish-made um, vehicle. Ben Wallace was in Sweden recently. I asked him if um, if that was a recce to uh, after he ditches Ajax to spend some money buying CV90, and he absolutely you know, t- took that idea out from underneath me. But watch this space. Uh, so yeah, so a, a day vis- visiting the troops and uh, a meeting his opposite number. And it was very interesting, actually, what what he has, what he had to say, just about the the, the war more more broadly. He was saying that the, the, there's huge issues at the moment with Russian leadership. He says they're blaming blaming each other for the disaster, as he describes it. Um, and he says it's a quagmire at the moment, and um, and it could easily turn into a rout. There's poor morale, there's high casualties, there's a lack of leadership. Um, they're just not they're just not performing. Um, and, and you're saying that there's a there's a, a blame game going on in Moscow at the moment, and and I think we've seen that. And, and I asked him about uh, General Gerasimov, so uh, Valery Gerasimov, the head of the Russian Armed Forces, visited Ukraine um, uh, last week. Forget my days. Yeah, it was last week, wasn't it? Um, there were suggestions that he be, was wounded in an attack. We now don't think that did happen. And uh, I asked Ben Wallace, and he said that they had no they had no information to back that up. So we don't think that. Gerasimov was injured, but he was certainly certainly in Ukraine for a fall guy uh, for a few days. And I asked if he was sent down there to be Putin's Putin's fall guy for someone to pin pin the blame on. And he said, "Well, well, they're all in fall guy territory." And he said, "This is a quote: Be careful if you're put in sole command of something in the Russian system because it may not be for long." Um, but he also said that that if Gerasimov goes, what does that say about Putin's judgment? And so there's this this interesting sort of dichotomy now about does, does Putin try and get rid of some of these senior generals try and blame the military for uh, for the for the mess but at the same time then he's responsible for putting those people in 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 the positions in the first place so so quite an interesting sort of view on uh, on the on the leadership he also said that the the number of generals that we've seen that have been killed i think we're about to a dozen now something like that um he said they've they've been going forward and they've been they've been bullying and screaming and shouting it's their that's their that's their model of leadership. He said it wasn't um, it wasn't a model that he particularly uh, uh, thought was very effective. 
I did ask him if it was the model that they used in the home office and he just sort of laughed a little bit and refused to commit one way or the other. Um, yeah, and I'll just, I'll just pause there for a little, a few more thoughts in a moment, but just uh, in case you had any comebacks on those two things. Yeah, I'm just looking at your, your notes. Um, I, thought it'd be, I thought it was interesting, the note about him talking about the, how, how old the munitions are that the Russians are using, 40-year-old musicians, and how he said that the only thing left is the Navy. What, what did he mean by that? Well, it, it was first on the munitions, he was just marking, as we've seen, we've seen some of the, some of the, the, the equipment that's being used just so old. Um, I mean, I did ask, I was asking his staff how Enlaw, uh, the, the Anglo-Swedish anti-tank missile, was faring against ERA, the explosive reactive armour on the tanks, these blocks, these sort of um, large brick shapes large brick size of of uh, explosive armor on the top of on top of tanks that uh, as a round comes in they 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 literally explode to try and push the round away um but we're seeing all these turrets that the the t72 turret turret throwing competition is is continuing unabated and we see all these turrets with era that hasn't gone off um and i wonder because n law is a is a single blast javelin has a has a, a double warhead tandem warhead how it was getting on against against the ERA and you say well the officials were saying well we we don't really know because they they're just not functioning this kit is so old um that the ERA is just not functioning and Ben Wallace made the point as well he said this this war is not doing any favors at all regardless of the massive impact on the Russian economy that the war is having and the sanctions are having um he's saying that it, it's just not showcasing Russian kit very well he was saying N law, a few thousand quid against T seventy two, low millions. I mean, guess what other countries are going to be looking to buy? It's um it's it's not that it's not that hard to see which way they're they're gonna they're gonna vote with their with their cash. So he was just saying that, that there's a, a huge um separation in just the just the technical ability. And uh, and that's that's clearly playing out on the battlefield. And just one more question from me before and, and before Theo. I'm sure you've got I'm sure you've got lots of questions as well. But just one more from me. In, towards the end of your notes, you say that he talks about how Ukraine is going to define success. Um, I just thought that was very interesting because, as the attacker, you'd almost expect the Russians to be able to define what success is, but but the, clearly that's not the case, according to Ben Wallace. And what, what does that have to do with uh, the the information war? Well, so to define define success. So this is. This is the idea of where we where are we going? Um, so I asked him, as you'll hear, we're going to put together for the podcast later. The the interview I did with him um, later on in the day. I mean, quite at the end of the day, the sound quality isn't brilliant because he was eating a Twix at the time and drinking a cup of tea and blowing his nose. It had a long day. Um, but I was asking him, how does a nuclear power safely lose a conventional war in the 21st century so how can how can russia lose this war without we've seen these doomsday scenarios of putin with it back against the wall using chemical biological nuclear weapons uh and he was saying well yeah i mean that is one that is one possible outcome of this war but equally it it's probably and we we will debate this in weeks to come it will probably grind down to some some awful stalemate and at that point Ukraine has a, has some decisions to to take, and it will be up up to them to define what is victory and at what point do they do they sue for peace. Um, but he said, Wallace said that that 
And this is a quote. There is not much appetite at the moment for a flawed peace deal. Like all deals, the question is not the deal, it's the implementation. And he was talking about Minsk Minsk, and the Minsk II agreement, which happened after the 2014 invasion. Um, and it's always implementation. And he made the point that since the 2014 invasion, since the 2014 invasion, Ukraine have lost 11,000 soldiers, uh, soldiers and civilians. 11,000 Ukrainians have been killed since 2014 as a direct result of the um, of the action Russia took and the and the separatist areas. I mean, it's staggering, absolutely staggering statistic. But unless there's an outright victory from one side or the other, how much of this stalemate will be acceptable to Ukraine? And so he says it's not for any anyone outside to impose um, their will. Um, it's for Ukraine to define what is what is satisfactory to them. It's for them to define um, success. This will be really difficult. You may remember a few weeks ago when we spoke to Lulia Osmolovska, who who was uh, it, who is advising. President Zelensky's negotiating team, and she made exactly the same point. She said, it's one thing to have the country behind you when you have an existential threat and the the unity is not in question. But once you start having the conversation about what is acceptable in in terms of peace, that's when healthy, healthy disagreement, healthy differences of opinion will be played by the other side and could turn into fissures and fractures and cracks if you're not careful. So this idea of what is peace and what is success is um, is, a, is a wide open debate. And we and we need to we will continue to have a look, have a look at this in great, great detail. And um, Ben Wallace was just was just making that point and underlining that it's not for anybody but Ukraine to to decide what is success for them. Well, I've, I've certainly monopolised the, the questions for a bit. Theo, do you want to come in at all? Yeah, it's a question about Finland rather than uh, Ben Wallace, really. We we, we and, and you have written about uh, Finland getting closer to joining NATO, and we had a, a feature in The Telegraph earlier this week about uh, the underground bunkers that uh, already... Uh, that are sort of ready to be used there if there if there is an attack. I, I know you you're on a bit of a, a whistle stop tour, but from being there and and seeing their their ministers and perhaps speaking with some Finnish people, did you get the impression that they are really concerned about an invasion? They're really worried about the military threat threat from Russia. No, I mean we did ask um, Mr. Kaiken and that exact question i went with uh, with colleagues um from the times and the mail so that the three of us were huddled together with mr kaigan and and um and no i mean they've had a bit a, a couple of incursions this year in fact one yesterday incursions to their airspace um mi-17 russian mi-17 helicopter straight about five miles uh, or five k's over the over the border yesterday uh, there was another incident in january um but Mr. Kaikunen said that the border area has been calm and stable. That's quote calm, calm and stable border area. But they are they have adjusted their force posture, adjusted their readiness levels, and we said adjusted up or adjusted down. He didn't say, but I don't think you adjust them down in the, in the face of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, so they they are wary, but I don't think there's any great um, imminence or concern of a of a Russian. A Russian threat. Russia has made all sorts of noises that if Finland and Sweden uh, apply for membership to NATO, then ooh, watch out, watch out, because we might we might come knocking. And Ben Wallace made the point you know, with what he's put. Putin's put sixty five percent of his of his entire army into Ukraine. Um, a lot of it is not in good shape. 
I mean, what's going to go into Finland? Um, Mr. Kaikinen said that they've been subject to cyber attacks, but then, you know, so everyone has. So not not a huge increase in threats. Um, it'd be interesting. I mean, Finland has a 1300 kilometer border with Russia, which is about what the border is at the moment. If you if you take into account the other NATO members and don't forget, of course, the Kaliningrad exclave, which borders Lithuania and Poland. So all told, at the moment, there's about 1300, 1300 kilometers. That's going to double if, if Finland join. Not only, I mean, that's that still only takes that's still only going to be sort of you know, nine or ten percent of of Russia's land border will be will border a NATO member. So yeah, hardly surrounded. But yeah, Mamansk is up at the up at the north of that. So um, you know, um, there might be uh, Russia might feel as if NATO is um, is better able to put assets in the area to to have a look at the the naval yards up in Mamansk. Yeah, I mean, these are all. This is just what happens if you if you go around bullying other countries. Don't be surprised if people want to join a defensive alliance to to seek their own um, own security. But no, Mr. Kaikinen was 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 clear that no decision has been taken at the moment. Um, he I, the the mood news it was that he was very very warm to the idea of applying for membership. Um, the question of what happens between applying for and getting membership, you know, are are you then vulnerable to an increased the increased wrath of Putin in, in that time. And that was largely downplayed. Uh, I mean, Ben Wallace, I mean, he said, he said there's, there's no way that, I mean, there's no way that today, if Finland or Sweden was subject to external attack today, I mean, there's no way that we, he said, there's no way that, that, that Britain and, and NATO would not go and help. And certainly if they'd applied for membership uh, between then and being accepted, if an attack happened, they would be, uh, they would be defended. I mean, you know, he didn't go as far as to say they'd be covered by Article Five, but I mean, you know, we're largely dealing in semantics here, and and I and I can't. It's so unlikely to happen that that it's it's, it's not it's not worth um, expending a huge amount of intellectual energy on. But no, I mean, I think Finland will be a will be a great addition to NATO if they if they choose to join if they, if they're accepted. Sweden as well, they have some very good capabilities. Sweden's ISR intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance airborne capabilities are. are are very good and very very much sought after. They're they're doing um, dozens of sorties around the edge of Ukraine. Um, I think there's there's some uh, very good uh, coordination, um, if not cooperation, between them and NATO in that regard. Um, so yeah, so uh, it it will firm up it will firm up the alliance. They'd be the thirty first and thirty second uh, members of NATO if they if they apply to join and are accepted. And one final thing I thought that was interesting that Mr. Wallace, the British Defence Secretary, for those of you who are just joining us, said was how he could envisage Ukrainian troops training British troops. Um, that, what did he? In, in what sense? And does this show the sort of the incredibly high regard that he has for the Ukrainian armed forces at the moment? Well, yeah, I mean, does he, he holds them in very high regard? We were talking about the training, um, not only the training on, on all the kit that's being supplied out there at the moment, but also. British Army has been running Operation Orbital since um, 2014 or 2015, actually. So in response to the 2014 invasion, this is low level infantry training and it's trained about 22,000 Ukrainian soldiers. And I, and I just asked them, I said, well, they've they've got some amazing experience. Um, and in you know, it's not a, it's not a new form of warfare, but the the the, the equipment is new and, and uh, using loitering drones and what have you. So maybe a new way of doing anti-tank ambushes and, and fibula fighting in built-up areas um, or fish, as we used to call it in the army, fighting in someone's house. Uh, and so I said, 
is there a, is there a mechanism for for getting that experience back into the British Army and and other NATO armies? So could we envisage Ukrainian troops coming to Brecon in Wales, the Infantry Training Centre, and and training us, teaching us? I mean, there's no no need to be precious about this. I mean, you, you know, you are you are on a hiding to nothing if you think, Mr. Putin, if you think your army cannot learn anything else and and you refuse to take knowledge and guidance um, and direction from those who, who are in a better place to give it than you are. And he, he was absolutely for it. He said, yeah, why why not? What's not to like if um, if they can come and train you know, after the war, uh, if they can come and train British forces and how better to do anti-tank ambushes using some of these new, new equipments, why not? So, yeah, watch out, Brecon. Yes, thank you very much, Don. That was fascinating. And hopefully for all of our listeners, especially our listeners abroad, gives you a good sense of uh, the internal thinking of of the British government and also um, our Nordic Nordic allies uh, in Finland and Sweden. Um, well, in that case, can I ask you both for your final thoughts? What should we be looking for in the days ahead? Um, I, I saw just before we came in to speak that Zelensky has launched a global crowdfunder to fund the Ukrainian army and the counterattack on Russia and then the rebuilding of Ukraine, which I thought was really interesting. And we will try to find out, well, we will we will find out more about that. Um, because as, as we know, uh, plenty of people and, and plenty of governments have been giving indirectly or directly to Ukraine through through charities. But this is a, a new initiative in, in which individuals can donate to the I think it's the Ukrainian Central Bank and then it gets divided between various ministries and the army which is um, I think an amazing initiative and it'll be very interesting to to see how that one plays out so I'll be looking at that in at least um, this afternoon. I'm going to be um, keeping an eye on the academics always wise to keep an eye on the on the academics so Ben Wallace said that he it posed this question to to the think tanks, um, principally, I'm imagining principally RUSI and IISS here in, in London, International Institute for Strategic Studies and the Royal United Services Institute. Um, other think tanks are available. But he was saying, he said to them, how, what is this going to look like at the end? Um, is, it, is it a Vietnam where a much more um, technically capable military is defeated because... Um, they didn't have home advantage, loss of public sport, et cetera, et cetera. Um, or is it going to look like the frozen conflict on the Korean peninsula? And specifically, why did that? Why are we left with North and South Korea? So is Ukraine going to going to break the Russian army? And and if it collapses, as it did north of Kiev, he's saying it could very quickly turn from the quagmire it's in at the moment to a rout and could just just collapse back into Russia. And, and there could be all sorts of upheaval then or does it just does it just freeze is there a bake in there on the line we've got at the moment down to sort of the not the entirety of the donbass but but a bit further forward from the february 24th line of control and the areas to the south does it just freeze there what happens to these conflicts why does that why does that endure so he's put that question out to think tanks here in london and elsewhere undoubtedly uh, i'd be really interested to hear listeners ideas on that you know what what What's the di- what is the difference between a Vietnam and a and a Korean Peninsula? Why do why do some conflicts go one way and some the other? So, yeah, I'll be I'll be keeping an eye on and chatting to the, the think tanks myself, and then obviously passing off their ideas as my own. And I'll be really keen to hear any thoughts um, anyone else has. 
Hi, I'm Dom Nichols, Defence and Security Editor at The Telegraph. I was with Ben Wallace, the British Defence Secretary, yesterday in Finland. He was visiting the Ninsalo training area and his opposite number, um, Antti Kaikkonen, visiting British troops. We also had a chance to chat about the war in Ukraine and a few other bits and pieces. He was a bit tired, a bit, uh, had a long day, long dusty training, training day. And so he was munching a Twix, drinking a cup of tea and repeatedly blowing his nose throughout this interview. So I can only apologise for the occasional loss of sound quality. How do you account for China's muted response to this war? Uh, I would say that's a rebuff to, to Russia. So you're Russia, you're hoping your friends are coming to the rescue. China abstains and Belarus just has lots of excuses not to really send any of its troops. I, I, would, I would say that I think um, it ha- it's hardly been full-throated support. I think, I think China thinks instability is bad for business and uh, I think it is watching Russia. Because early on we, we were worried that there was, well, there were concerns that they might lend, lean in with economic and military support. It doesn't seem to have been the case. Why do you think that is? Because I think China are probably embarrassed by Russia's conduct, by its road to effectively international isolationism, and um, I think it, China probably doesn't see it in any interest to join the gangster next door. How does a nuclear power safely lose a conventional war in the 21st century? Safely? Yeah. We're worried that his back's against the wall and he's going to do something well, as crazy as invade another country. Soviet Union lost the war in Afghanistan. But that, but that was the system. This is now invested in one man. Well, he's made it so, but that's, that seems to be where we are. So how can Russia lose this war safely without these fears we have of chemical, biological or nuclear weapons being used? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't... I, 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 I mean, you're right. There is no check and balance. There's no Politburo... So, thank you very much. This way, sir. Um, there's no um, there's no checks and balance. Um, but there are people in the system who will eventually realise that um, how can it safely? I mean, remember he controls his media, so he can tell everyone tomorrow morning he's won a stupendous victory and uh, uh, get away with it. So I think, and I don't know what by the word safely. I mean, I think well, with, without him, without him using a, a nuclear weapon. President Putin is, is a clever man, and he knows, so far, that escalation leads to escalation, and he knows that, in, in Ukraine. It, it, at the moment, it's getting to a point, no matter what he tries, it doesn't work. The Russian, the Russian doctrine has the use of nuclear weapons in its normal warfighting plan. I don't think I really want to add to that by having a, a view of it. Um, we've seen him evoke them. But I, I am, you know, NATO is a nuclear alliance. Britain has a nuclear independent deterrent. Um, that matters. From, from the West, there have been differences of opinion which, which occasionally are dressed up as cra- cracks in the Western alliance. I wouldn't suggest to go that far, but do you think we've seen the, as far as these differences of, of opinion will go, or the longer this carries on, do you think that there will be there will be sufficient differences of opinion that Russia can push the alliance apart? No, I, 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 I think you're right to say not cracks. You know, let's look at it the other way around. The strength of an alliance is you can play to your strengths, right? So, so even Germany, 
I take the view that there are different times to play in Germany, right? You know, I mean, Germany does, has always done a lot of support around healthcare, you know, medic, ISR, transportation, foreign aid and development. Someone's got to be part of the pack to help rebuild Ukraine. So, so I don't think there are going to be, I mean, look, look at Bulgaria. I mean, Bulgaria is a really good example of a, a coalition government where you had some that were, I think one of them was a communist, former you know, communist, sort of more, more Putin-leaning, I would say pro-Putin, and others more Western-leaning. Um, a bit like the Hungary, you've got a bit of a, mm, yes, maybe, but we're not going to release the weapons. We are. Well, that's been fixed, you know, just when, just when it gets a bit tough, Putin rides the rescue. <laughs> and suddenly, you know, I mean, look at Lavrov's comments about Adolf Hitler being partly Jewish and the response that's got in Israel. So um, I think actually NATO has worked and is working. If you think NATO's main obligation is its borders, it is more unified, it is more determined, it is committing spending elsewhere and increased spending, it is helped deploy and facilitate a, a you know, plan, but, but deployments of EFPs, Romania, Bulgaria, um, so that's more united. The EU's been pretty united on its sanctions and everything else, despite all this, you know, it's going to be vetoed by this country. Turns out not to be. Uh, it's taken tough, okay, it's t- taken tough sanctions. Um, I actually think this has been... Helicopter a success of an international community working together. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Alice Hearing. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.